There is no rational system of pricing, neither for HIV drugs, nor vaccines, nor any other medicine uh, around the world. The free market does not effectively provide affordable access to medicines for all. It's a quite bold statement that comes from a new collection that's just been published on bmj.com, Achieving Fair Pricing of Medicines. Now, one of the people behind that uh, is Suru Moon, who's co-director of the Global Health Centre at the Graduate Institute of Geneva, and also, who also sits on a WHO advisory group on fair pricing. So, Suri, thank you very much for joining us. It feels like you're the right person to talk to about all of these things. Great. Thanks very much for having me. You've written a, a particular paper about creating a framework for this, and in the introduction, you say that... The price of medicine should allow for meeting the societal need of the product. Now, you've, I agree with that broadly, um, but I also think that that should apply to, to other things like housing and food, water, electricity, lots of other things that people need to, um, to live and, and have healthy, productive lives. So I wonder, you know, it's the base of this. What do you think is potentially different about about medicines um, when it comes to how we should think about pricing? That's a, it's a great question. And I do think that medicines have a lot of similarities to some of the other products you just mentioned that would you know, broadly be considered essential, such as food and housing, um, education, etc. And I think this is the reason why in many countries in the world, governments do play a very central role in regulating the pricing of those products to make sure that they are in fact affordable to to everybody who needs them. Uh, there are, I think, some very important differences with medicines, um, and here I'm going to get into some of the uh, the economic uh, theory that comes up in one of the articles um, that was led by by Steve uh, Steve Morgan from University of British Columbia. And medicines do have a number of characteristics that are quite different from other products. So if we think about uh, food or housing, for example, with medicines, the patient often doesn't have much choice, right? If they need a medicine, they need it uh, usually uh, right away, or at least you know in, in pretty short order. And there aren't always a lot of choices. So with food, for example, if the price of bread goes up, then maybe you can buy potatoes. You know, if the housing in the center of the city is very expensive, you can move a little bit further out. And there are often you know ways in which the market can function to bring prices down, and there's ways to introduce competition. Um, with medicines, we don't often see that, right? We, we especially medicines that are uh, under monopoly protection for various reasons, you won't have competition and you might not have an, an alternative. There might only be, only be one medicine that will uh, treat your condition or help a particular patient at a given point in time. Um, there's another aspect of medicines that's pretty unique, which is that patients are oftentimes uh, what economists call insulated from the, the, the price or the cost. So luckily, mm. um, in countries like the UK and in Switzerland where I live, we have pretty good health insurance coverage, and so we don't have to pay for all of our medicines out of pocket. Of course, in lots of countries of the world, that's not true, and patients do, in fact, um, pay and medicines prices are some of the most regressive uh, factors in, in healthcare financing in, in um, low and middle income countries. But even when we look at the, uh, the more developed countries where you have strong social protection systems, such as those in, in Europe, um, what you have is, of course, 
the price of medicines is getting so high that even in, in countries with strong insurance systems, people can't afford them. But um, getting back to what, what I was saying before, when, when patients do have insurance uh, and they're not necessarily seeing the price up front, what that leaves is a kind of a distorted market. So the patient is not making a decision on whether or not they take the medicine and their uh, physician is not recommending which medicine they take, uh, taking price into account. And what that often means is that the seller has a lot of liberty to set the price uh, at a much higher level than if people were more price sensitive. So there are a lot of factors that are quite specific to medicines that makes the market um, not function at all the way um, normal markets would work in other areas such as food or um, uh, other commodities. Mm. So what on the face of it might seem like a, uh, a quite philosophical uh, take is actually quite a pragmatic one. I think it's it's really both. I think many people would agree that medicines should not be treated like uh, you know a luxury good, like a diamond ring. I think many people would agree they shouldn't be treated like a laptop computer or, or a cell phone or something. Um, that there is something uh, that is unique about medicines. That there's an ethical imperative to provide them to people who need them. Uh, but as you were saying, there is also there are also a number of characteristics, economic characteristics about pharmaceutical markets that make them um, function very poorly. And that's why they really, really cry out for uh, smart and strong uh, government regulation. Mm. Now, um, people that might not agree with that would be the pharmaceutical companies themselves. And, and in your framework, you have sort of looked at, at what would be a fair pricing for a company, the, the manufacturers of these medicines. And um, I don't know, reading between the lines, it feels like you give uh, fairly short shrift to some of the arguments about what factors should be taken into account when deciding you know, what the cost of a medicine is, huge executive salaries potentially, and, and other bits and pieces. Uh, how did you decide? How did you go around thinking about what should be included in uh, what would be fair from the manufacturer's point of view? Yeah, so the way we, we came up with the framework was to look at uh, the way price regulation is done in, in some other sectors and what are the factors that uh, are taken into account, for example, in competition law when courts are trying to decide is um, is there abuse of um, uh, market monopoly happening? Is there abuse of a dominant position in the market? And things like cost of production, uh, fair profit, uh, the price of, of similar products in the market, um, these are all, I think, common sense factors to take into account when you're trying to think about what is fair for the supplier and, and what will keep the supplier in the market because of course we do want companies to invest in um, medicines uh, research and development and, and production. And we are having increasing challenges with shortages in many different countries around the world. There are um, growing problems with shortages of medicines. So the uh, mm. problem that a, a price can be too low is absolutely a real one. Um, I think taking into account the realities of the pharmaceutical market, uh, there were a number of factors that I think many experts would agree are reasonable to take into account. Um, there are some factors that are specific to medicines or the pharma industry that, that there's quite a robust debate. You know, what is a fair um, compensation for executives? You know, what um, should we in fact consider the cost of marketing? You know, in many countries, uh, advertising and marketing of medicines is illegal. It's not allowed because it's considered to run counter to the public interest. 
Um, there are a few exceptions to that, but most countries in the world actually don't allow marketing, um, direct mm. marketing to consumers, I should say, of, of medicine. So um, in areas where there's a lot of controversy, we thought, you know, why don't we just leave those out of the framework? Uh, it's not going to be... Um, the point of the framework is not to get into those controversies in particular, but really to highlight what, what are some common sense um, factors that most people would agree, yeah, a company that makes an investment, that produces a product, um, that sells it and, and offers society a benefit by, by doing so, you know, we want to keep them in business. How would we do that? While at the same time, of course, meeting some of these growing societal concerns about affordability and sustainability of, of health systems. Um, I think one of the, the factors that I think is quite important that we, we did include in the framework is the notion of fair profit. So I, I would not say that companies uh, shouldn't make any profit on their medicines, quite the opposite. And I think that we need to have a broader debate on what do we consider to be uh, a fair level of profit? When is a profit fair and when is it excessive? And courts are asked, in fact, to make those decisions um, in many, many other areas. It happened on a very limited basis in the area of pharmaceuticals, but in many other um, areas of business, courts do make judgments. And when they make those judgments, they take into account things like uh, profit margin, uh, you know, what is the margin in the rest of the industry and other industries? What's the cost? That kind of mm, thing. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, getting back to your, getting back to your original question, um, I think really the, it comes down to, you know, what is a fair profit that a company uh, should be able to make on a, on a life-saving medicine or a, a medicine that alleviates suffering? And what are some other considerations that societies and governments should be taking into account when they're, when they're assessing that? So you do that, that's in, in the article, um, as is some of the things uh, about a country or an individual or whoever else's ability to, to afford this. Um, so when you've got these factors together, you is the aim of this to try and almost work out a formula for that we can apply to a medicine and say, yes, that is a, a fair price for it? Uh, the, the framework that we have proposed uh, is sometimes misunderstood or misinterpreted as a formula where you plug in a bunch of numbers and it'll spit out at the end uh, a number, and that is the fair price. And what we were actually trying to do, on the contrary, is to create the notion that there is a zone, there is a, um, a range of prices that could all be considered fair as long as they... Um, <clears throat> cover the costs of the producer and a fair return uh, on investment, and at the same time remain under a certain ceiling, uh, which is that it remains uh, affordable to the individual or the, the society in which the medicine is being sold. I think one of the other unique aspects about medicines that we didn't um, get to earlier is that the cost of production is often a very, very small proportion of the price. Uh, mm. And the rule of thumb in the U.S. or in Europe is about one to three percent of the price is is what it costs to actually manufacture the product and get it to to the um, the patient or the end user. And you compare that, for example, to let's say the food industry, where uh, the cost of production is is going to be a much much higher proportion. You can see already there are some significant differences there. But one of the implications is that. Um, because the cost of production is so low, you can actually have huge variation in pricing. Uh, and what this means is that much, much poorer countries can still cover the cost of production of a medicine. They could pay 
you know, let's say a medicine is priced at $100 in Europe, um, a poor country could pay $5 for that medicine and still cover the cost of production uh, for the supplier. Uh, a country in Europe might pay $100 for the exact same medicine and offer you know, a fair profit, cover some of the R&D costs, um, and of course the cost of production for the seller. This is something that is, um, it's not unique to medicines, but it is, is certainly you know, uh, something that, that is a special feature of the way medicines are, are priced. And here I'm talking generally about on-patent um, monopoly medicines that are the, the newer drugs on the market, not the low-cost generic drugs like you know, paracetamol, uh, et cetera. Yes, of course. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, I mean, this is a, a good point to sort of talk about affordability, and obviously that depends on a country's ability to pay, as you say, and, and that does vary wildly. Um, and so part of this whole picture is potentially putting in some mechanisms to, uh, I don't know, spread the cost uh, across richer uh, and poorer countries, um, but also to to make things that, that increase the buying power of, of countries um, generally, things like transparency, which you know you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, I think to me, it's really quite striking the way transparency comes across in uh, almost every single one of the articles as an important theme. And I think if there's, uh, you know, one word that really captures one of the, you know, the key message across the entire series, I would say it is the, the value and importance of increasing the transparency of the pharmaceutical market, which is currently very opaque and in many ways has been uh, becoming more and more opaque over the last uh, decade or so. Um, and so it's quite striking when you read all the articles one after the other, you know, how clearly this, this message comes through. And I don't think that was, um, you know, th that wasn't necessarily planned in advance. I think that really did emerge organically from the, the analysis that all the different authors were, um, were conducting. We have had some transparency about um, the cost of, of drugs, medicines, um, perhaps when it comes to things like HIV provision in, you know, lower income countries. And that's led to some arguments from, from higher income countries saying, you know, this isn't fair. Why do they have to, to pay less? And, you know, the way the markets work, you can imagine that what ends up happening is not that high income countries pay less. It's just that those low income countries end up paying more for those drugs. So could it actually have a, a perverse effect on on the fair price of medicines? I think the first thing to um, point out is that there is no rational system of pricing, neither for HIV drugs, nor vaccines, nor any other medicine uh, around the world. I think the closest we come to that actually is, is uh, in the area of, um, of HIV medicines because of you know, two decades of very strong political mobilization. But there is no uh, big system that everybody has agreed upon that means that prices are systematically um, set at a level that a country can afford. I mean, that's unfortunate because a system like that would, would be hugely beneficial in, in many ways. But, um, but getting back to the world that, <laughs> that we live in today, um, I think that there are, uh, you know, because of economic theory, you know, there are some arguments uh, made that 100% uh, price transparency on medicines would mean that everybody would demand the same low price. And uh, as a result, you could not 
have a system where rich countries pay more than, than poorer countries. And one of the interesting findings that's presented in this series uh, is in the last article, um, which was led by Tanya Cernucci at WHO. She manages the um, a vaccine price database system. Over the last uh, five years or so, uh, WHO has been working to try to improve the transparency of the global vaccine market by asking for information from countries. They've had uh, incredible success uh, in increasing the number of countries that contribute information to that database such that we now have a lot of information and understand much better the global vaccine market. And there's a couple interesting findings from, from their paper that are worth mentioning here. One is that we do have very, very significant uh, price differentials between low, middle, and high-income countries for the exact same vaccine or very, very similar vaccines. Um, and those price differentials have been sustained over time. And that in most cases, the payers in the wealthier countries, you know, whether that is the, the, the richest countries or even the middle-income countries, they do in fact accept you know, they accept that uh, the poorest countries in the world should pay less. Uh, and I think there's kind of an unwritten political bargain that um, that uh, sustained that. And the same, we see the same dynamic in uh, in HIV, that the richer countries accept to pay more. Um, where this argument reaches its limit, though, is when prices of vaccines or HIV medicines in rich countries begin to go up and up and up and up, which has been happening in the U.S., for example, such that in the U.S. Uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to afford HIV medicines. Uh, it's becoming increasingly different difficult to vaccinate a child against the most basic uh, childhood illnesses in the U.S. because of the price of vaccines. Um, and this is when high-income countries begin to question, well, wait a second, if it's possible to sell that vaccine for, you know, a dollar a dose or five dollars a dose, why should we pay 200 for it in the U.S.? And this, I think, comes back full circle to the fair pricing framework. Uh, just just because we say that a high-income country should pay more than the lowest-income country doesn't mean that that price is infinite. But I think the, the vaccines uh, study is, is really important for showing that price differentials can exist even with um, uh, a lot of transparency in the market. And it also shows that the prices don't converge. So this is something that economic theory would predict, that in a perfectly uh, functioning market with perfect price transparency, with perfect information, uh, everyone will pay the same price. And again, the argument that we hear is that, well, if everyone pays the same price, then the poorest countries or the poorest uh, buyers lose out because they have to pay a much higher price. They don't benefit from that low price. And what we see in the empirical evidence with vaccines is that the, there's not been this convergence. There has not been this movement away from you know, being able to differentiate prices. And you know anyone who knows how vaccination programs work or has dealt with vaccine procurement could tell you, you know, why is that the case? Uh, and there are lots of other factors that go into determining a price, uh, not just information about the price. Uh, so I think hmm. some of the fears and concerns about um, improving price, price transparency have been based on some theoretical arguments that have not um, held up when we look at when we look at the evidence. Yeah, and that's a really nice thing in this series is, is some of that uh, empirical evidence, real world uh, data that that isn't just a, a theoretical argument, isn't just a modeling study. So um, it, it's good to go and read for that reason. You've touched on this a little bit there already, but I think we need to, to delve into it. This, The whole purpose of this is, is essentially to 
reduce um, the profit that a company makes from an individual drug uh, to make sure it's, it's fair, it's not, not earthrious. Now, part of the way that pharmaceutical companies work at the moment is that they attract investment because they, they have a high return on that. Um, if you're working to reduce um, the profit, that might also work to, to reduce the investment. Um, you know, I, I just wonder, can, can we actually make this work within the system that, that we have at the moment? That The investment that, that might reduce are, will be the, the kind of money that then does get put into to new drug development um, I think it's you know there, there, it seems like a can you fix this without fixing all of all of the way in in which business works I suppose yeah I think I think it's a really important question um, and I wanted to raise three different points um, in response to it so please you know bear bear with me a little bit <laughs> I, I think the first is that the the point of the argument of trying to achieve fair pricing is not actually to reduce profits. Uh, in many cases, we might talk about reducing the price of a particular medicine. Uh, but what we see in many countries, uh, especially the less regulated uh, countries, is that you can increase the volume of a medicine that is sold if you decrease the price. Uh, so it's not necessarily the case that a company would earn less money um, if they were required, for example, to reduce the price of a particular medicine in a particular that country. That's an important point. Um, yeah. That said, uh, it is entirely possible that achieving fair pricing for all medicines everywhere would in fact reduce profits for uh, for some companies, especially where those profits are what we might consider um, supranormal meaning far beyond what would be a reasonable rate of return or a, or a standard rate of return in, in other industries. And we do know that the pharmaceutical industry has consistently been one of the most profitable in the world, even taking into account um, risk, you know, adjusting for risk. Uh, and at the same time, we know that some companies have so much cash that they have hoarded uh, from, from the sales that they've made that they don't even know where to invest it. And in fact, some of the shareholders get angry with the management because they say, why are you sitting on that cash? Um, uh, why aren't you investing it in R&D or acquiring new companies? And sometimes there, there isn't enough uh, new science, there aren't enough interesting ideas or new potential medicines to invest in compared with the amount of money that's available. I mean, to me, that's a sign of a uh, financial system that's a bit out of, out of balance. Um, that's not every company. That's that's some companies. Um, but I do think it's important to remember that 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 is happening to today. Um, but even if the the and here I'm getting to my third point. You know, even if the uh, profits across the industry uh, were to fall, I do think we have some some wiggle room to for profits to fall before all the money would drain out of the pharmaceutical industry. I think we have to remember that you know in a globalized. Uh, capital market money will flow to where there are opportunities to to make a return. And as long as there are returns that are being offered in the industry, and this is where the concept of fair profit really uh, comes back into the picture, as long as there are fair returns that are being offered, um, investment will flow into the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I do think, though, this is a good moment to, to pivot to one of the other articles in the series that I think is really important, and that's the one that was led by 
Professor Fatima Suleiman, focusing on um, alternate business models of R&D. You know, are there different ways to invest in and finance research and development that would not require uh, high prices at the end of the day to recoup those investments? And this would not require a change in global financial markets or a change in the way businesses um, are run. Uh, but it would require governments deciding to um, pump money into R&D in a different way from the way it's currently done. Uh, but I do think, for example, if we can offer you know, billion-dollar prizes, uh, and you know you can adjust that number up or down depending on the the therapeutic area we're talking about, but you can imagine if a company thinks they can get a billion-dollar prize in exchange for developing, you know, extremely safe and effective. Um, new drug to treat multiple cancers. You know, that, that is going to be an attractive financial reward, and you're going to have uh, lots of investment into R&D. So these are the kinds of ideas that um, are put forward in Professor Suleiman's article. Uh, and I think we need to have much more of a robust public debate on how do we uh, continue to, to mobilize funds to invest in innovation, because everybody wants uh, new and better medicines, especially to meet areas of unmet medical need. Uh, and at the same time, make sure that the, um, the new medicines, the innovation that does come out of that pipeline is actually reaching patients at the end of the day, is reaching as many people uh, as they possibly can. Because ultimately, if a new medicine doesn't reach patients, it's, uh, there's just no point. It's just sitting on a shelf. And most of the uh, scientists that I've spoken to over 20 years of working in this issue area, the people who are on the bench, you know, whether in companies or in academia um, or in government labs, you know, the ones who are working day in and day out and, and trying to develop new medicines, that's really what they want. Uh, they want their, their inventions to reach people uh, and to improve people's lives. Fair pricing of medicines is now available on bmj.com where you can read Suri's article plus all of the ones that she's mentioned in the interview today. So Suri, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us on the podcast. Great, thank you very much for having me. I'll add a link to the collection in the podcast text. That's it for this episode. We'll be back very soon with a look at the long-term effects of cancer treatment in children with some research which looks into how that has changed over the decades. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.